Hi, I'm Joel McMahon, pastor at St. Philip United Methodist Church, and we welcome you to this weekly podcast. As we begin, let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Dear Lord, on this Memorial Day weekend, we pause and remember all of those who gave their life for our country, who died in service, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would comfort those who lost loved ones uh, because they were serving and protecting our country. Also, O oh God, our hearts go out to all those in Uvalde, Texas, who have been affected by this senseless shooting. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would comfort those who uh, are hurting this time. Lord, I also pray for all of those that are listening that are facing different challenges in life. And uh, that I pray that you would just draw them to you. And as they cast their burdens on you this day, that you would just make it clear that you're going to help them take care of whatever they're facing. We thank you for your word, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to uh, understand it at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read to you just a, a brief portion from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, I would encourage you on your own to read the entire chapter because this chapter is sometimes labeled the Lord's Prayer. We have other recordings of very brief prayers, but this is the most extent prayer that Jesus prayed that we have access to. And uh, in this prayer, he prays for you. He prays for all of those who have uh, come to uh, salvation through the disciples that were with him that night in that upper room. And so I just want to lift up just one little line through it uh, or from it today uh, for us to uh, uh, really concentrate on. And that's John 17, 21. And this is where he prays that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Whenever Jesus uh, had his disciples together that last time uh, at the Last Supper, he paused and he prayed this prayer. And whenever he prayed that they may all be one, he was praying for those disciples that were there in the upper room with him and for all of those that were going to come to hear the gospel and to come into the kingdom of God through them. So that prayer was for you. And this prayer is for uh, us today. Now, it's for believers today. This is not a prayer for the world. This is a prayer for those who have come to know Jesus in his fullness. And his prayer is that we may all be one. That we may all be one in a certain way, though. Uh, as he says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That they may be one as we are one. So how were the Father and the Son one. They were one in close intimacy, in deep, committed love. They are so close that they share the same purposes, goals, 
hopes, and desires. They love each other so much that they will sacrifice for each other and they will sacrifice together for their common purposes and their one common purpose in particular. They share a life together. Uh, they both share a common love for every person in the world. It says in uh, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now that's what Jesus says to us about why, why the Father sent the Son. Now listen to what Jesus says about himself. This is in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus prayed that the Father, uh, prayed to the Father, uh, that uh, we may all be one as they are one. And he uh, gave the reason for this purpose, so that the world may believe you sent me. That's our purpose as the body of Christ, to live closely and deeply with the Father and the Son and with each other in such a way that the world will look at us and believe that the Father sent Jesus and is now in us. Now, let me back up just a minute and just talk a little bit more about this intimacy and this, this closeness. I think Paul does well when he uh, compares the relation between Jesus and his church to that between a husband and a wife. And uh, because my wife and I have been married uh, 56 years now, and uh, we are close. We have been together, we have, and we, we share the same goals, the same hopes, the same dreams, and many times nowadays we even share the same thoughts. And uh, in doing so, uh, sometimes we creep our kids out because we will, we will respond with the same words at the same time. Now, this is just like the father and the son. They've been together a long time, like forever, you know, and they've loved each other all this time, and uh, they are close. Their purposes are the same. They are one. Now, Jesus does not use the word unity here. Unity can be conformity. Unity, unity uh, many times today, comes from, uh, or it, enhanced, it, it, it entails the idea of uh, compromising uh, your values uh, in order to get along with each other. And that's a false unity. Uh, oneness is whenever you are close, you're intimate, and you share the same hopes, purposes, dreams for life. And uh, our purpose as the body of Christ, is to live so closely and deeply with the Father and the Son and with each other so that when the world sees us, they will believe that the Father sent Jesus. Now, 
the, the, our purpose as a church is not primarily to save people. That's not what it's about. The Lord leaves us, and he said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Leave them in the world, Father, because the world needs them. And we love the world, and we want the world to come to us. And as the world sees them in connection and union with us and with each other, they will want what the church has. Now, so it's not primarily to serve purpose, to save people. It's also <clears throat> not the purpose of the church to change the world, uh, but it's to live for him with each other in such a good way that the world will know that Jesus has been sent by God for them. Now, sometimes we become so concerned about necessary social changes that we give the impression that the church exists in order to make the world a better place in which to live. But that misses the point entirely. For the whole picture of scripture is that no matter what the church does as God's instrument in the world, the ultimate end of the world will be anarchy and chaos. It will end exactly as Jesus Christ describes it, despite the best efforts of the church, and it was never intended to be any different from that. No, the church is not here to improve the world, least of all to save the world. No, we're here, but for one thing, and Jesus says it here, that the world may believe that thou, Father, hast sent me. That's in John 17, 21. The church is left here in order that people in the world may become convinced that Jesus Christ is the authentic voice of God, that he is the authoritative utterance of what God intends to do in human affairs, that he is the key to world history and reality, the revelation of the invisible God, and therefore the only way from man to God. When the world becomes convinced of this, the rest of it is up to them. We cannot save people. We cannot argue people into the kingdom of heaven. We can't browbeat them into the kingdom of heaven. We can't shame them into the kingdom of heaven. And we can't even love them into the kingdom of heaven. Our task as believers in Jesus Christ is not to save the world. Our job is to bring it to an awareness of who he is. And when men and women come to that awareness, they will do one of two things. They will either accept him and be saved, or they will reject him and continue in the lost condition in which the whole world continually exists. Now I can say for sure that there were people who loved the Lord and loved me. Neighbors, uh, actually, that uh, uh, made such a difference by me just observing them. The peace that they had in their hearts, uh, the love that they showed the people around them, the connection they had with their church. I saw all these things at a time when I didn't 
even uh, have a, a real conviction that there was a God. I'd been brought up in church, but I just about uh, decided to just discount him and, and just cast him aside. But looking at these people, I saw they had meaning and purpose at a time when I was tired of living and scared to die. And it wasn't their arguing with me. It was just their peace and their loving on me and, uh, uh, and, and the, just, just going on with their lives with the Father, unabashedly with the Father and the Son. And I saw something in them I wanted. And I, that's what brought me to the point where I cried out and said, God, if you're real, let me know. Now then, some people would say that Jesus' prayer hasn't been answered. That he prayed this prayer 2,000 years ago and it hasn't been answered. And they would point to all the divisions in the uh, physical church, the organized church that you see today. And if you look around, you might agree. Today, my denomination uh, in our, our, our conference, our area, uh, is having its uh, annual conference. This is an annual meeting that we have that uh, uh, considers the business of the church for many, many churches, about 700, I believe, in our denomination. And our denomination is split. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the things that split not just our church, but other churches as well in a, in a minute. And we're going to be deliberating over things that I'm sure grieve the heart of God. But uh, as we begin our meeting uh, this evening, our own denomination is in chaos, and nearly all church organizations are strongly divided in what I would uh, just put them into three different categories uh, as far as the some of the basic divisions in the churches. Now, there's so many divisions, so many things that churches get divided over. I remember one church that uh, they got to fighting over whether a, uh, a chicken, it was okay to eat a chicken that had had its neck wrung. And they got to arguing about uh, whether you chop the head off or if you wrung its neck. And, uh, and they got in such a tizzy about this that they split. And when they split, they just uh, split the land that the church was built on. And then they cut the church building just right in half. And half of them took it to one to their side, half of them took the other to the other side, and uh, they just split the property and split the building. And uh, I'm, do, do, do you see what a testimony that is to for for people to come to know Jesus? Uh, but all these other different sources of division are in the same category. They're all categories. Let me. I'm just going to go through them real quickly with you. Just, just some things I wrote down last night about some of the divisions in the church. Uh, the three categories that I would put uh, Christians that are in churches today, that I would put them in are traditional Christianity, pseudo-Christianity, and nominal Christianity. Now, traditional Christianity are those who hold uh, the beliefs and values that have been passed down from the first apostles and the church fathers to us, from the very beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, 
when the church was formed. And, uh, and we live out of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we believe that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's traditional Christianity. That's orthodox Christianity. But then there are other people in the church, and many of them are really pulling and pushing uh, uh, to have their views accepted by the entirety of the organized church. And I call these people pseudo-Christians. Now, pseudo means fake. This is pseudo-Christianity. And it's not new. Uh, in fact, the Apostle John talks about it in 1 John 2, 18 through 19. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, plural he says there, see, Antichrists, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now that's 1 John 2, 18 through 19. And he calls these people anti-Christ. And there are people in the church today who are uh, in leadership roles in many churches, many denominations, who do not really hold to the tenets of traditional and orthodox Christianity. In fact, uh, one of the uh, uh, chief pastors in our church year, several years ago uh, uh, advocated something I'm going to talk about in just a minute, but I have not through. Uh, nominal Christianity, let's get back to that. In nominal Christianity, uh, James uh, talks about that in James 1, 5 through 8. He says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. If you need to know how your life, how to live your life, that's what he's saying there. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. There are many, many people that go to church every Sunday, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian. And there are others that couldn't even tell you who the name of the pastor of the church is. They'll tell you, I'm a Christian. And they have more what I call folk Christianity. They bear the name Christian, but they don't know anything about the Christian faith or what they have. They've just picked up here and there from their buddies and from their friends. And even if they've listened to good, solid sermons, they would rather listen to their friends and their buddies than listen to uh, a, a good Bible teacher. And these people are confused and they don't really know uh, what things are all about. Now then, <clears throat> I want to just take some of these tenets of the Christian faith 
and uh, just kind of uh, list them out for you. First of all, is the Bible God's word? Is this the word of God? Or is it not? Orthodox Christianity says this is God's word. This is what we live from. And uh, gosh, there's so many passages uh, uh, that I could, but it would be from the Bible. And uh, that would be circular. Now, so let me go ahead and tell you this. It says that all scriptures, one place it says all scriptures inspired and, uh, and good uh, for our instruction and our edification. Uh, back in Psalms, it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But let me tell you uh, what I discovered in my time of doubt before I really came into the Christian faith was that uh, if you want to understand and know what the Bible's about, approach it like a mathematical formula. You prove it by doing it. And this is what I did. I just, I couldn't just bring myself to believe, but I could act as if these things were so. And the moment that I started trying to act as if the things in the Bible were so, they began to manifest themselves and make themselves clear to me. And so uh, I would say, first of all, try it. You'll like it. And uh, you'll discover that as you uh, apply scriptural principles, they will prove themselves. And uh, just like anything else in life, it's not until you try it that you'll find out that it's true. I used to be one of these that stood back and said, I want to believe, prove it to me, and I'll believe it. And the Lord prompted me by saying, no, you go ahead and prove it yourself by trying it. So I did. Now then, so that's this is the Bible you'll discover this is God's word. It is true. It works. And uh, it, uh, it, it gives you life because it points. Jesus said, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have life, but they point to me. These all point to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, they point us to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now then, there's a... a a well-known pastor who did uh, come up with this uh, uh, way of looking at scripture that, uh, that is more of the uh, pseudo-Christian way of looking at it. He says, and, and pseudo-Christians will say, no, the Bible's not God's word. They'll kind of hedge that, say, now, the, the God's word is contained in the scripture, but the scripture isn't God's word. But uh, so this particular leader has suggested that we divide scripture into and put, you can put it into three buckets, if you will. And I think that's just kind of uh, insulting to God's holy word is to talk about putting it into buckets. But uh, that's what he said. So script first, scriptures that express God's heart, his character and timeless will for human beings. That's bucket number one. Bucket number two, scriptures that did express God's will in a particular time, but are no longer binding. And then bucket number three, 
scriptures that never fully express the heart, character, or will of God. So he's saying that there's some stuff in here that just doesn't have anything. It shouldn't even be in here. I guess he'd like to do like Thomas Jefferson and go through and uh, just uh, edit out the parts he doesn't like. But you know, we can't edit out the things that God has handed to us. If we'll accept them and if we live out of them, we'll find that they're true. And there's, this doesn't go in a bucket. It doesn't go in a bucket. So, uh, but that's, they'll say, no, the Bible is not God's word, that it can help us to get God's word, but it's not God's word. And uh, number three, the nominal Christians, their position is just utter confusion. They have no idea what to say. They, well, it's, 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 it's something, it's the church's book, you know, and it's got to be interpreted. Anyway, we'll just let that go with that. So the Bible is the Bible God's word. So uh, the next, what do you do with Jesus? Orthodox Christians, Jesus is God incarnate, the word made flesh. God having taken on flesh and living among us, the only begotten son of God and the savior of the world. That's how Orthodox Christianity looks on him. Son, Savior, Lord. <clears throat> Pseudo-Christianity says he was just a man. He was a great teacher. And we should learn some things from his teachings just like we should learn things from all these other uh, people. He was a great example. I love what C.S. Lewis says about if you've got a, a teacher that's telling you that he is God, he either is or he's a madman. And you need to make your choice which you think he is. And yes, don't, but don't call him a great teacher if he's a crazy teacher. And, uh, but then uh, nominal Christians would say, they just, again, they're in confusion. And I've just flat heard it asked, Jesus, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Martin Luther King, Moses, they're really all the same, aren't they? They don't know. They don't know. How about the blood of Jesus and the cross? Are they needed for the forgiveness of sins? Orthodox Christianity says yes. Pseudo-Christianity says no. In fact, someone will just felt that tell you we need to get rid of this slaughterhouse religion. We don't need, and we needed to get crosses out of the church because they offend people's sensibilities. This whole thing, that's a, from another time, and we don't need to pay any attention to that. Nominal Christians, they're in confusion. They just don't know. How about the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Orthodox Christianity says he's coming soon, morning, night, or noon, uh, uh, that, that uh that he is Lord. And one of these days, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Pseudo-Christians, and these are people that are leaders of in, in, in churches, in denominations, 
It's unnecessary. That's just a thing. That's just a, a theme kind of thing. Uh, nominal Christians, confusion. They just don't know. How about Jesus being the only way to the Father? Orthodox Christianity says, yes, yes. This is what our Lord said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Pseudo-Christians say, no, there are many ways to the Father, if you want to call him that, or to the ultimate being or or supreme being or whatever. But uh, they, they would say, no, he's not the only way. How can we even know the way? And then there's the nominal Christians who are just totally confused about this. Salvation. Orthodox Christianity says it's a part of the Christian life, that it's necessary. You've got to go through it in order to live the Christian life. Pseudo-Christians say, it's not necessary. It's not important. Uh, talking about it just offends people and makes them uncomfortable. We need to talk less about this and, and, and get more people into the church. For what reason? So, and then those who are nominal, the, the ones I'm labeling nominal Christians, confusion. And here's another Who's going to bring about the kingdom of God? This is a great dividing line because you see, Orthodox Christianity looks forward to Jesus Christ coming again and establishing his reign. They say Jesus is the one that's going to bring in the kingdom of God. We get to help. It starts right now. We can enter into the kingdom of God right now. And as we live our lives the way we're supposed to live them, others are going to be drawn into the kingdom by us. Pseudo-Christians say humanity, people are going to usher in the kingdom of God. We're just all going to get better and better. And their vision is the church just helping everybody to get along, get along with each other and uh, build a better, a, a day of Aquarius kind of thing. Uh, this really started, you really started getting big in the 50s and 60s. And, but since the 60s, do you see humanity getting better? Aren't we still seeing man's inhumanity against man or people's inhumanity against people, I guess I should say? making this world worse and worse every day? How about nominal Christians? They're confused, and it scares them to think about it. Talking about the, the king, coming kingdom scares the bejabbers out of them. Now then, these are three basic divisions that we have, and all of these divisions are in our church, in our denomination, let me put it that way. But let me tell you this. The prayer that Jesus prayed back then, that they may all be one as we are one, the Father has been answering that prayer. He has answered it through the ages from the time that Jesus prayed it 
he began to answer it. Because you see, this is another thing that our Orthodox Christianity believes in, and that is that there is the body of Christ. The one Catholic church, Catholic with a little c, meaning the church universal. Those who are all joined together by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we celebrate the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one with the other. It has no denominational uh, labels, it, uh, and, but God has been answering this prayer for over 2,000 years. Let me let you see kind of what this looks like. Many years ago, I was sitting in a bowling alley with a, a youth group of ours uh, at a church that I was serving in Texarkana, Texas, and a young man about 11 years old came up and he said, Sir, we're here tonight from the Church Without Walls just sharing our faith in Jesus. Sir, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I just smiled and said, I sure do. He's my Savior and he's my Lord. And I tell you what, a great big smile just covered that young man's face and he said, ain't he good? And we just fellowshiped together there as brothers in Christ, having just met at that moment. Another example, in 1996, I attended a pastor's conference with more than 36,000 Christian leaders from all over the world. Nearly every ethnic group was represented. It was just like a rainbow of, of skin color in the uh, in the in the in the uh, in the stadium. And one of the speakers was actually a Mohawk Indian Indian who was wearing a, a white feathered headdress as he spoke to us. And amazingly, a talk about church unity from this passage that I'm talking about right now, uh, which was the most moving of the whole conference, was given by Max Lucado, who at that time was a Church of Christ pastor. Uh, now, we ended that night with our hands joined and raised high, singing together from the bottom of our hearts, let the walls come down. I think I had a Chinese pastor on one side, I was holding his hand, and I was holding the hand of a hillbilly that was there with me on the other. And they were both my brothers in Christ. You see, in the true church, labels don't matter. Color doesn't matter. What does matter is Jesus as Son, Savior, and Lord. Uh, again, uh, so serving in a community where uh, we, some of us ministers, just got together. Baptist, Methodist, from the non-denomination denomination, a Church of Christ, Christian Church, Lutheran Assemblies of God, Nazarene, uh, a pastor from uh, the Church Without Walls, the, the guy I was talking about, the, the church I was talking about earlier. We agreed to come together and put aside any of our denominational labels and uh, uh, just to put aside 
our denominational ism, let me put it that way, and just gather as the spiritual leaders of that area, called by God to be spiritual leaders in that area, and to pray for God's will for our area. And his will is found in 1 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We knew that we could agree that there was one thing that God wanted, one thing we could agree on, and that was the salvation of every soul in that area. And so we fasted on Fridays till noon. And then we would gather, we would alternate whose sanctuary we were going to gather in. We would gather and we wouldn't even speak to each other except to say hello. And then we, we all got together, we would pray for an hour for the salvation of everyone in that area. Afterward, we would fellowship. And, uh, and it was a glorious time. We knew the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and we were about our Lord's work. Some of the laymen in our churches heard about what we were doing, and they started getting together at uh, something like six o'clock uh, on a Saturday morning or some morning, specific morning every, every week, and they began to pray and have then have breakfast together. And out of that came the idea that we needed to have a community-wide uh, communion service on Easter Sunday. And we did this, and we all gathered uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain place, and about 600 people gathered together, and uh, we, we uh, all took communion together, and all of us served it together. No denominational labels. The only label was brothers and sisters in Christ. It was a wondrous time. And uh, you never forget something like that. So there is a body of Christ. And uh, the thing is, we see in John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then John says later in 1 John 5, 2, by this shall we know that we love God because we love the brethren. It all begins here. And this love is not just a fakey love. It's not just a putting aside of differences. It's a sharing of a life, a life given to us by our one Lord and a purpose given to us through him that we share with him and want to carry forward with him. And so the thing that makes this whole thing practical and keeps us from sabotaging the work of the Holy Spirit in his deep longing to reach the blinded, confused world outside is that we give willing, glad consent to love any Christian, any time, for Jesus' sake. Now, I have resolved that there's at least one heart 
in this world, which is ready to love every person without exception, in whom I sense a love for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Regardless of his or her denominational label or lack of it, and despite any theological differences of viewpoint, I'm ready. God in me and helping me to give myself in love to any Christian anywhere whom I may chance uh, to meet and in whom I sense a fellowship of love for Jesus Christ. That's the basis for Christian unity. And I have, since I've committed myself to this, I have experienced this over and over again. And I've found so many that are committed to this. And let me ask you this, are you willing to join that? Are you ready now to say, in order to reach the world around us, Lord, teach me to give up my prejudices, those separations, this withdrawal, these sub-Christian attitudes toward my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and make me willing to love them and to show it for Christ's sake. If you are, pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you are the God of love. When we look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that love poured out for us. And we see your great love for us, which prompted our son, our, our, your son to go to the cross for us. What remarkable love that is. Love that won't let us go. Love that pursues us despite our rebuffs. Love that never gives up. Relentless in its pursuit until we yield. Broken, melted by your love. Lord, this is the nature and character of the love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. It is this remarkable thing that the world waits to see in Christian people. It is the absence of this, Father, that makes them turn away from our doors, uninterested, disappointed. Lord, teach us to love one another. Whatever this may mean in terms of our personal circumstances, teach us, Father, to love one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for praying that prayer with me and for being with us at this time. So until next week, goodbye and God bless.